0: Appreciate you coming in and doing this. Uh, thank you, thank you. We've often stated that the the privilege to open God's Word and the uh, preparation uh, so many times. I'll, the preparation, uh, from my perspective, is the best part. I mean, I'm in my study. I've got the Word of God. I've got hymns playing in the background, and as I think about it, what is this text saying today? What is it saying, uh, what was John writing to these people in the first century? Uh, we could spend hours going through the history of the culture and, and, and the context of, uh, in which these sermons were developed. But uh, not only did it speak to those people, but it speaks to us this morning. Uh, how appropriate the hymn that was picked out, More About Jesus is What I Know And that's what we've come for. We've come to see more about Jesus, His saving grace, His fullness, His word, have communion with Him. All of those things are the reason that we're here or the purpose that we're here this morning. In our last two times together, in John, we focused on two statements. The first one is, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me drink, you would have asked Him... And he would have given you living water. In the emphasis, whether it was clear or not, the intention was that we might grasp a sense of what it means to know him. We reflect back to earlier in the book, uh, in chapter 2 I think it is, where he said he needed no one to tell him about man because he knew what was in them. And so in each story, in each separate narrative, as he deals with individuals, we see that he knows he knows the heart. He, needs, he knows the need. That's from his perspective. Oh, that we would know our need as he does, and that our need is for him, and that we might know him, for in knowing him is eternal life. In the second, last, last uh, time we were together, we looked at that passage of Scripture in John chapter 4, where it says, For the hour is coming... written 2000 years ago it came and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth and so we tried to point out all of the things that are relevant to and necessary for true worship of God First, the truth about who He is has to be known. And of course, the truth comes to us, even as we've said more about Jesus would we know, it comes to us through the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we pointed out simply that several places in the book of John, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Truth. And we made the point that we cannot separate true truth, eternal truth, from the Spirit of the living God. Today we plan to focus on John chapter 4, verses 31 through 38. So if you'll follow along with me, I'll begin reading in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are four months, then come the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. There are three phrases here, three ideas that I would like for us to focus in on as we work our way through this text this morning. First of all, I have food to eat that you know not of. I guess this word know will come up again, and it's so crucial. Well, it is crucial in our day-to-day life. We have to know things. We need to know who it is that stands before us. We need to know our own need. And here (laughs) he says that we have food that you know not about, and he's going to use this opportunity to teach them what that food is. He goes on to say and explain, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then in a, it took me a, and I may not have it figured out yet, but as I contemplated this next section, I was trying to say, how do these two tie in together? This next phrase, he, he moves right into it and he says, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor so you might think about it what, are, what does that have to do probably the first thing that comes to mind is evangelism uh, or at least that's what came to my mind and there are texts that uh, parallel this text i think in corinthians it talks about those who sow and those who cultivate and then but it's the lord who brings the increase but um, as we look at these three statements uh we're going to look uh At the immediate context. John, in part of the context, is summarized, and we've covered this each week. We've quoted this verse. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, this text, this story, this narrative today, is included. These are written so that you might believe <clears throat> that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Naturally, as I looked at it, I said, uh, Why? How does this particular text fit into this? Well, the context, the circumstances, that I want to define this word context. We use it every time, a lot of times when we preach anyhow. The context or the circumstances... That form the setting for an event, a statement, or an idea, and in terms of in terms in which the s- events are fully understood and assessed. Uh, if someone who knew nothing about the scripture were to walk in this morning and we would read this text, they would have no context. Someone who had never picked up a Bible, who knew nothing of the Lord Jesus Christ, Absolutely, all of it would be foreign. But we come into this text with a context of our own. We'll elaborate on that in a minute. There's another word I want to introduce to you. Uh, It's not critical that you know it and you can throw it out. It's the word pericope. And it's a shorthand and it simply means I looked it up to make sure it's a selection or an extract from a book. It can be a long narrative. It can be or a story of Nicodemus, the story of the woman at the well. Or it can be just this extract from our text this morning, the text, but we're always wanting to keep it in context. So yes, we have looked at the pericope or the selection of concerning Nicodemus and the one of the concerning the woman at the well. We have tried to look at them in their immediate context. The immediate time when it was happening, now this was recorded and written years and years after this event took place, but John is trying to put us in that place at that time so that we might visualize, that we might hear, that we might see with the, ears or, uh, the eyes of our ears this story, this pericope, this extract of what was going on because it has meaning. It's a reason and we've covered that each week. To understand each of these selected texts, we must see their immediate setting, but we must pull back because this story is in the Gospel of John, which is in the four Gospels in the New Testament and reflects in what we call the whole canon of Scripture, including the Old Testament, and time and time again, Jesus will reference the Old Testament. So that's the broader context. If someone were to write a book or a summary of your life, they would have to include your being here at Grace this morning or some morning as a sample, a part of who you are and what your life is about. The context might include in this book the details and your being here, the, the, the uh, nature of the building, the uh, location in Fuquay, Uh, the air was running, who was here with you. There are lots of things that could be included in the story that might be relevant to the point to the main point, which is the purpose for which you are here. It would include perhaps the history of the church. That would be the broader, not the immediate context. In all reality, your story has become a part of my story. And more importantly, we are a part of, or a continuation, of the story that we're looking at this morning. I hope you see that continuity. Because if we, and where we started in the book of John was in chapter 17. He talks about the disciples, the apostles that he has kept and he's given a ministry to. And then he also prays for those who would believe their testimony. Well we're going to talk about the testimony and read the testimony as given here today as they testify to the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. That didn't come to us immediately, but it came through, uh, to us intermediately through someone, somewhere, somehow, literature, radio program, music on the radio, Sunday school teacher, parents, someone who presented to us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this great story. So we have the narrative before us, but it fits in what is called a meta-narrative, the, the, the overarching story. Uh, we call that, or some people call that, the story of redemption or the history of redemption. And I just we've been through this many times, but I want us to remind us, because this puts it in the larger context, it pulls us out of Fuquay, takes us out of Samaria, and puts us in the larger text of historical biblical history of the story of redemption. This story it begins in eternity past and will never end in eternity future. It's an ongoing story that will last forever and ever. And what a blessed thought for those who have, of us who long for the next chapter. And I say that. I'm not saying that I'm not enjoying where I am in space and time now, but this pales in comparison to what is promised to us in the future. There are many ways of summarizing this story, but I'm going to offer you mine. It includes the story of creation, the story of the fall, the many stories of the promises made to those who belong to God. It includes many pictures and types And it's a story of the provision, the ultimate provision, which is redemption. And it includes a promise and a description of the consummation of this story or the restoration where God's creatures, people that were created in his image, those who have been conformed to the image of his son are in his presence, worshiping him for all eternity. In this story, the promise to Abraham that the nations and the Gentiles would be blessed has been fulfilled. The provision has come. The one who would redeem is standing there in Samaria before this woman, not a Jew. You Jews worship here, we. She makes this distinction. She is one of the nations. She is one of the Gentiles that is outside of the covenant of God. It is into this greater context that we move from the telescopic view, looking down the story of redemption to the microscopic view of the events here. It's in the light of this context that we will focus on these three statements. I have food to eat that you know not about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into that labor. So let's begin in our text, beginning at read, backing up to verse 25. I get too on too fast. Please raise your hand. I'll try to slow down. The Lord slowed me down one way. It may you slow me down now. Okay, so back in verse 25, the woman said to him, Here's that word no again. Here's a Samaritan who historically rejected all of the Old Testament except for the first five books. She says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She knew that there was one Messiah who has promised to come, and she knew some things about him. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the introduction. Here we have the purpose of the book as presented in John 20 illustrated. Jesus, the eternal Logos, the son of God, tells us here that he, tells her here, tells us here, he is the Christ. The Christ, the Messiah, simply the anointed of God anointed for a purpose, anointed for a role. <clears throat> Jesus, the eternal God, has entered space and time. He is the anointed of God, and she has at least, she, he's the one that she has at least passively anticipated. And I use the word passively because she wasn't actively, day by day, living her life in anticipation of the coming one from God. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was, oh, I read that, I'm sorry. Okay, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Okay, this immediate context has a lot going on in it. Culturally, the Samaritans, the Jews... Her personal life story. All of this is in the background. And so they wonder. They marvel. One, and he doesn't tell us. The disciples marveled, but it doesn't give us the reason for the question to the woman, what do you seek? And it doesn't give the reason <clears throat> uh, for the, to the question, why are you talking? We have to surmise that. And we won't do too much surmising this morning. We'll go far afield. but we. You can kind of get a taste of the reality of the story and the narrative that these are real people, real time. And as if we were on the street and we saw something unusual, something out of place, something out of the ordinary that just shouldn't be. And we would have questions. How could this be? And that's basically what's behind this. Well, the narrative continues with the woman abandoning her original plans and purposes for the day. What was her purpose? Why was she there? She came to draw water. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Mark is the one who's supposed to be really swift in in his gospel, moving one immediately he appeared here. Here, there's a swiftness to this. She drops her water jug, she runs to the city. And cause to the town people. She had a sense of urgency in this new plan, in her, her new purpose. Why? Well, as I was studying and meditating on this passage, I was drawn to the transaction that took place there. And the transformation that took place because of that transaction. Only the consequences, you can't see, we can't see into the heart of the woman, We can't see the Holy Spirit working. We can't see the words actively working in her heart and in her mind, convincing her (coughs) of who he was. We can only see the consequence of it. That's why we say we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone, but grace is never alone. There's a consequence to being saved. (coughs) It changes us from what we were to who and puts us in the process of to whom we will become. <clears throat> Here the Messiah, we are going to go with this, the Messiah, the Christ, who is the, what does it mean? The anointed one, has arrived, and I believe that as the Father has given all things into his hand, he in this story has just anointed this woman with his spirit without measure. That's my short way of saying, it. she got born again. She got born from above. Christ, the anointed one, puts the spirit within her heart or sends the spirit to her. Beloved, permit me to share with you the thoughts that I rejoiced in that ran through my mind as I was preparing. And what's, you know how your mind starts here and then all of a sudden you're over there and you, you know, how did I get here for a moment? And so I had to think about it. How did this start? I'm getting ready to read you. It started with the idea uh, it popped in my mind. I was, I was thinking about food and, and, and the whole context and about a feast prepared in the presence of my enemies. Well, that takes you back to Psalm 23. In a moment, okay, so in a moment, Jesus had just harvested, and this ties it to the second part. We mentioned that Abraham's, the promise of Abraham was being fulfilled. One had just been harvested, and soon later he would die for her. But in a moment, she had left her water jar filled with new hope, new joy, and new peace. She could well proclaim, and perhaps as she became a believer and as Christianity grew, she read the rest of the Old Testament and happened upon Psalm 23. So she could well proclaim, the Messiah has come. I have no want. My desires have been fulfilled. He has granted me as one of his sheep the peace of lying down in green pastures and strolling beside still waters. Oh, how rejoice now that my soul has been restored and that he leads me in his paths of righteousness for his name's sake. One day, this woman will face the shadow of death, but all of her fears are resolved and re- resigned in her new shepherd. Perhaps she would say now, in the face of all those that had persecuted her because of her lifestyle The Messiah has set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The Messiah has satiated my thirst and my hunger with living waters. He has anointed me with oil of the Holy Spirit, and filled my cup to overflowing. I'm convinced from that day forward that she was followed by grace of mercy. And I believe, by faith, no certainty, no dogma here, that one day I may see her hiding in the shadow of the Savior as we both enter into His eternal home. So she, with a new sense of urgency, a new sense of purpose, runs back to tell the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? We should witness. We should testify. We should bring and point others to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I believe from experience that too often I try to do this with a half-filled cup. When it's overflowing... When it can't be contained, that's when people see a reality of the faith that's in us. We don't live that way very much, but we can pray like the song says, Fill my cup, Lord. Fill it up. Make me whole. So then He went out into town. We're coming to Him. Meanwhile, all these unusual and unexpected events are taking place. The disciples turn to what they see is the most immediate need, which is they urge rabbi eat notice that they are urging him urging him and again notice his response in the moment of urgency and how (laughs) how they interpret his response in the face of this beckoning him to eat he says I have food that you know not about what was their natural response their natural response was to say someone has brought him something to eat do you see a pattern here You see a pattern? Tear down this temple and I'll build it back in three days. Impossible. Took 40 years. You must be born again. How can I be born again? Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? I'll give you living waters. You'll never thirst. Oh, give me this water so I don't have to come back every day and draw water. We live naturally. We've been placed here by God's providential hand in His grace and mercy. In a physical world. Christ entered in it. He took on a physical body. We see him weary. We see him hungry. We see him thirsty. He who comes, back a couple chapters in chapter 3, previous chapter, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That's us. That's the disciples. That's those that he confronted. They're from the earth and we have a tendency to only see in an earthly way. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he who God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand. Have you ever heard the statement about some person Usually for some reason it's an overzealous Christian. He's so heavenly minded he's no earthly good. You ever heard that? Am I the only one? Anybody hear that? Okay, I see some nods. (laughs) In one sense this is true. There are so people that are so full and high in the clouds that they don't live that life out practically on earth. But I'm afraid the opposite is more uh, the case than the first he or i am so earthly minded that i am of no heavenly good it would take some time with the savior in fact it would take both his death and his resurrection for the disciples to fully comprehend all that had been promised in the story of redemption and it changed their lives immediately go to the book of acts and you can see a newfound faith those hiding in the attic uh, in a locked room, are now preaching on the streets of Jerusalem. Jesus is about to illustrate what it means to be heavenly minded. He will explain in the summary what it means <clears throat> to feed on that which has, is more than temporal. Uh, throughout the scriptures, and I, I, I'm running short of time, so I'm not going to go to... Just think about all of the references to food... To feasting, to eating in Scripture. And of course, food is a necessity. You have to eat and you have to drink. But the Scripture is presented in such a greater light. It presents the pleasures of eating. And by way of metaphor, it talks about the Word of God and the person of Christ with these metaphors. You'll remember even in Genesis, it says, Of every tree of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Psalm 19, 9, 10, the psalmist writes, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even more fine gold, sweeter also than the honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. This is not our natural state. This is something that the Spirit has to work in us. I know that we we can have a tendency to put on a, a front and make it sound like, oh man, we're just swimming in the grace of God when we're struggling all the time. But may we learn to grow and to taste that the Lord is good, that His righteousness is sweet to the taste as compared to anything and everything that this world could offer. I had on my email as a sign-off at one time, Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. We challenge in a lot of ways. We challenge you from the pulpit. Have you, do you know Him? Uh, Are you a believer? Have you received His Spirit? And we challenge you as believers, challenge myself. Am I daily tasting of the Lord Jesus Christ that He is sweet? Certainly, Jesus, David's greater son, knew from eternity past the infinite delights found in his eternal father. He had come to share. He came to share with those delights. He came to share those with us. Peter puts it this way, like newborn infants, long, this is a command, long for the pure spiritual milk that it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I can't help but believe that you're here this morning, not out of, don't know, hope not, out of a sense of responsibility or obligation, but there's a hunger and thirst. Even as we sang, more about Jesus, what I know. D.A. Carson says that Jesus used this occasion to speak of the priorities of God. I would say that he used it. I agree with him. <laughs> don't get, But he used it to teach his disciples about the purposes of God. And he used the metaphor of food, that which was essential to point. My food is to do the will, the desire, to fulfill the desires of God and to accomplish the work for which he has sent me. So I want to tie it in with the last section. And I said that that last phrase there, uh, he says, he said, uh, the wheat, the harvest is near. He says, I have sent you to reap where you didn't labor. What's going on here? And I want to connect it with two, two words. As the father has sent him to accomplish his will to accomplish his purpose. Jesus in chapter 21 says, Even as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Brothers and sisters, we are joint heirs with Christ. We are co laborers with Christ. And Jesus saw the work that the Father gave him to do as a privilege. Remember from Hebrews, he put it this way despising the shame. He counted all joy the cross despising the shame because he could see the end uh, where he stood. So as we close this morning, uh, I guess my prayer is simply that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. That we we might satisfy our deepest longings, that we might find peace for our greatest fears in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For that's truly salvation. The forgiveness of sins is just the beginning, the opening of the door up to the relationship. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and through the means of grace, church and communion and the sacraments, that we enter into that fellowship with Him. Our gracious God and Father, I do pray now that as we close, uh, that something of what's here today might carry us through this following week. And that, Father, more by more, one of your purposes, all things work together according to your purposes, that would be that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. We ask this to the praise of your glory in Jesus' name. I'll ask you to.